All right, well, good morning to you all. It's great to see you all together here today, this morning. Amen. So, uh, if you all got your uh, your bulletin on the way in, we're going to be doing chapter uh, 20 today in Revelation. And we'll do that even if you didn't get your bulletin today on the way in. As well. <laughs> we're talking about victory. A different kind, a better kind of VJ day. Amen. So, uh, uh, Revelation chapter 20. When you find it, would you please stand? And uh, while you're finding and standing, I'll also take this opportunity to uh, thank all of you who uh, helped out in some way with our with our moving to our new home. You all have uh, certainly blessed me and my family. And it's my prayer that, uh, that y'all will, the Lord will equally bless you and your families as well. So, thank you. All right. Revelation chapter 20, beginning of verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was a devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority of the judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when a thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and books were open then another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done and the sea and the sea gave up the dead who were in it death and hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged each one of them according to what they had done then death and hades were thrown into the lake of fire this is the second death the lake of fire and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, again, we come to you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you. Thank you this morning for bringing us here. Thank you for giving us uh, another opportunity. What a, what a privilege to be able to come together uh, as a body and worship. Father, we thank you for that. We ask for your wisdom in serving one another today. Uh, show us how to 
how to be attentive to those around us and encourage and uh, edify one another, um, looking away from our own needs uh, and, and uh, looking to you at, at, for how to, how to help, how to help others uh, in the needs that they have. Lord, may we encourage uh, each other, especially as that day approaches. Uh, Father, uh, may we not lose sight of the things that we're reading about here, how you have wrought a great work, won a great victory um, through your power, by your sovereign will. And you've done it all for us, that you might be glorified through bringing sons, many sons, to glory. Lord, we don't know um, what kind of dark days may lie ahead for us in this country. We speculate, but uh, only you know what's ahead. We do know that other Christians, other brothers and sisters in various parts of the world are going through some very dark days right now in terms of their experience in this world. We're all in need of your grace. So, Father, uh, help us, help us, Lord, to get these things now, to, to get your word into our hearts and minds, to gain understanding now, so that by your grace, by your power, we may be prepared for whatever we face in this world. And so that through it all, you may be honored and glorified. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I want to just, uh, before I, I, I get into the verses here, just give a, a little bit of um, a reminder again and a little bit of context um, of what the main message is flowing all the way through here because we're, we're, we're getting it over and over and over and over, which is good. We, we need it. If you're like me, you're hard-headed. And uh, and we you know we need to, we need to hear it over and over and over so that it sinks in. Christ has won the victory, all right. And the the great adversary of Christ and of the church is a defeated foe, Satan. And, and here again, we're going to be reminded of this today in this text. Satan, the great adversary of of Christ and the church is being restrained by the power of God. And he cannot stop the mission of the church. And in the end, he will be condemned to eternal punishment with all those that he has deceived. Now, just to, just to kind of help us with perspective on that, just we, we had mentioned this morning in Sunday school um, a little bit about the children of Israel and how God created the nation of Israel and how they, they essentially got their start uh, as slaves in the land of Egypt. So try to, try to put yourself, in just um, in, in your imagination, try to put yourself in that context this morning and um, imagine yourself as a slave uh, in Egypt um, in the ancient world and you get word that the day is coming. 
that God will send a deliverer. Now again, try, try, to, try to imagine that in context. All you know is oppression. All you know is slavery. You don't have any real... Uh, I mean, you have an idea about freedom, what it might be like, but you don't have any experience with it. But it's a dream. You know, you long for it. And in that context... The word comes. God is going to send a deliverer and you will be set free. Well, that is just a picture, really, of the whole redemptive story. And there is a sense in which we we live uh, in that way in this world. Not as slaves to the world as, as Christians, but... But certainly, um, we, we have to live under a certain measure of, of oppression. And if we were to just focus on our circumstances, you know, things that we deal with day in and day out, things that we read about and hear about that others deal with in this world, if we were to just focus our attention on those things, um, I, it would be easy to despair, would it not? Now, just here we are in uh, 2015 in the United States, and, and we're starting to get a little bit of, of um, I almost hesitate to call it persecution. It is persecution, but it's mild. But we're starting to get a little bit of persecution for being Christians. Uh, and I don't want to downplay, you know, some people have already suffered, uh, at least financially, uh, uh, you know, put out of business and that kind of thing. So I don't want to, I don't want to downplay what they're going through, but I'll, I'll, I'm just making the point that it hasn't gotten real severe here yet. But it may, it may. We're just, we're just now getting a little taste of it. And other Christians in other parts of the world are experiencing very severe persecution. Now, all that to say this. This is why I think the book of Revelation, in fact, you could say the Bible as a whole, but just as we've been doing for the past several months, focusing on Revelation. This is why the book of Revelation is given to the church. It's, it's not um, so that we would get caught up into a bunch of speculation uh, about you know what all of these images mean precisely, precisely what they mean. And, and it's, it's, it's good to wrestle with some of those things in a healthy way. And, uh, I mean, we, we want to we understand as best we can. But the primary purpose here is to encourage us so that we know what we face in this world is temporary. And so that we know, no matter what it looks like in this world, God is in control. You know, we've, we've seen again uh, repeatedly, haven't we, that he's, God is pictured here as the one who sits on the throne, right? And, of course, the idea behind that is to, to remind us that he rules. I mean, he, does, he, he doesn't sit on the throne for the purpose of relaxing. He's sitting on the throne for the purpose of ruling, ruling the world. I mean, that's the picture there, his sovereign reign. And then we have Jesus portrayed in images like we saw last week in chapter 19. As a, as a conqueror, right? So it is a reminder for the church. It's, it's encouragement for the church that God is in control and that all of the trouble that we have in this life is only temporary. So we need to uh, um, take great encouragement from those things. Now, 
Uh, let's just add a little bit to that this morning, a little different aspect of it. Um, and that is that Satan, while he is a real enemy, and, and let me just say this, you know, because some, some people will say, well, uh, you, you do have people out there that say, well, you know, um, Satan's just kind of a way of representing evil, and, and it, you know, it's just kind of a, a, um, a personification of evil. But I think the Bible teaches clearly Satan is a person. He is a spiritual being, okay? So we're not talking about some little mythical uh, character. We're talking about a person, a powerful spiritual being that's whole objective is to destroy the work of God. And, and that includes destroying the church. But here's the thing, getting back to the encouragement here. Christ has won the victory already, just like we talked about last week, right? Already, Christ has won the victory. So, so what we're, the victory that we're looking at here is, is not um, only future, it is, it is now and future. It is now and forever. Now, you might say, well then, why do we have all these bad things going on? And why do we struggle with sin day in and day out? Well... The, the full realization, the fullness of this victory is, is not manifest yet, but it will be. All right? so, the, so again, these things are given to us to let us know this is how it is. And the full manifestation of it is coming. It's coming. The consummation we've talked so much about, which includes the judgment of the wicked, including Satan, uh, who's behind all of this, and, and then the reward for the people of God. All of that is coming, and it is sure. And it's not in doubt. It's, it's not, okay, it depends on how, how good we do here and how good we do there. No, it's not in doubt. It's sure, and it's coming. And we need to know that <coughs> to help us deal with the things that we face in this world. Now, uh, I want to say something, too, uh, <laughs> about this this text. This is one of the most controversial passages in the Bible, probably, um, in terms of uh, the debate over how it is to be interpreted, okay? Um, whole theological systems are built on um, some of these verses here, and I'm thinking particularly about uh, what is called the millennium or the thousand years, uh, the thousand year period here. Now, uh, one thing that I have done all the way through here, is avoid pulling out a bunch of charts and graphs and, and, uh, and, and walking us through the various interpretations. Um, for the most part, I've avoided that. I've mentioned a couple. I, mean, I haven't pulled out any charts or graphs, but, but which uh, you know, some people will, will, will tell you, at least jokingly, uh, you, know, you can't teach Revelation without charts and graphs. Um, so, so, so we're trying to prove that wrong, okay? <laughs> um, but... If, if, we, if, if there are any questions along those lines tonight, we can, we can talk about those tonight. Pretty much what I'm going to do this morning is just uh, uh, <laughs> tell you what I think is the right uh, understanding here and, uh, and, and acknowledge, like I'm doing now, that there are others, okay? Um, so let's, let's go to verse 1. And, and also, too, I'm going to primarily focus on verses 1 through, um, 1 through 10. Uh, and then uh, 
probably will make mention a little bit of the remaining verses, but we'll, we'll plan to come back to that tonight for the most part. So look at verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Now that word then again, there, there's that, um, that indicator, or at least what we want to claim as an indicator uh, of chronology. You know, like this happened, then this happened. Um, but, and I've mentioned this quite a few times too, so just a reminder here. Uh, a lot of what we're seeing in the book of Revelation is recapitulation, all right? So he's, he's recapping. He's, he, he gives the story from one perspective, and then he recaps. But then he gives a different perspective and even some more insight. So I, there's a little bit of that going on here, too. Um, now, we're not, we're not totally t- ruling out chronology. In other words, in Revelation 20, we're coming to the end of the end, the consummation. All right? Uh, it's bringing us to that point. But I, but I don't think... Let's see, how can I say it? I don't think we're strictly talking about the future here. I think what he's saying in this chapter, I think, can, can cover the now and also the future with more emphasis on the future. But, but it, and I'll try to explain that as we go here. But it's, you just kind of picture of an umbrella. We're, we're under it. Uh, and the, the center of it and the rest of it may be over there somewhere, but, but we're under it. So, so it's, it's a, there's a bit of recapitulation here in, in chapter 20, in my view, uh, as well as uh, a looking forward to future events. So what does he see? He says he sees an angel coming down. Some some people in, interpret this to be a reference to Jesus. Um, I, I don't think that's necessary, but I understand why they why they do that because uh, this angel is binding Satan. So they say, well, this has got to be Jesus. Um, but I think it could just again be imagery to to make the point that God has Satan in control. God has Satan on a leash. All right, and and however. However God works that out, whether He uses an angel to, to do certain things or whether Christ Himself um, uh, would, would bind Satan, to use the terminology here. Um, however God works that out, I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's up to God. But the main point is, God has Satan in control. We're not talking about equal forces coming at each other. All right? So let me see if I can read a whole verse here, and then we'll, we'll move on. I haven't made it through it yet. But um, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Okay, let's, let's stop there for a moment. You've got an angel with the key to the bottomless pit, uh, we've already seen this pit mentioned several times. It's the uh, um, it's the word abyss. You know, we we use that word sometimes. That's that's coming from this Greek word. Uh, so the idea there is a is a pit, or as it's translated here, a bottomless pit. So there's an angel with a key to the bottomless pit, and this is the, presumably the same pit that the locust emerged from earlier. If you, you remember that. Um, so it's mentioned it mentioned already a couple of times in in previous chapters. Uh, in fact, I can give you the references uh, in nine verses one and two. Um, again, in chapter nine and verse eleven, it refers to the the uh, angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and Greek he is called Apollyon, the, the destroyer. 
It's mentioned again in verse 11, I'm sorry, chapter 11, verse 7. Uh, the beast rises from the bottomless pit. It's mentioned again in chapter 17, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Now, are all of those talking about the same pit or is it just using the same imagery? Um, I guess that's debatable, but I um, just wanted to show you that there, there has been previous previous mention. And you, you may re- recall, too, there, there were examples. for uh, One is in, in Luke chapter 8 when... Jesus cast the demons out of this demoniac. Uh, interesting there, Jesus asked their name. And this demon is speaking through this man. And, and Jesus says, what is your name? And the, the demon responds, legion, for we are many. So there were many um, demons possessing that man. And Luke 8.31 says, they begged Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. The same word that's used here. So that's interesting. And you might be saying, well, explain that to us. Well, um, I would if I could. You know, uh, I mean, we, we, we just know what we have there. You know, it's the image of, of, a, of a pit, a bottomless pit. What precisely it means, it refers to in the spiritual realm. Is, is hard to say, except obviously this. Um, the, the demons are saying, look, look, don't, don't command us to go into the abyss. So, so it would seem to be some form of restraint, right? That they want to avoid. Possibly even includes, um, torment. You know, some of the demons would cry out, have you come to torment us before the time? But certainly, at least some form of restraint. And, that, and that's what I want to pick up on here, because that's what's happening here. The angel comes down from heaven. He descends holding in his hand a key to the bottomless pit, the abyss, literally, and a great chain. Now, this, this is imagery. You, you, don't, you don't chain up a, uh, a devil, right? Spiritual being. So, you know, the, the picture here of an angel with a, with a key and a chain, it's, it's imagery being used to convey a spiritual reality. In other words, um, this angel has some means to restrain the devil. And we are talking about the devil here, capital D, not a devil, but the devil. Verse 2, he sees, that is, the angel sees the dragon. That's, that's a reference back to chapter 12. Remember the dragon that was waiting on the Christ child to be born so that he could consume it, destroy it? So, so there we had um, Satan portrayed as a dragon. Um, so, so John, in, in his um, relating this vision here, is identifying this creature with the one of chapter 12, the dragon. He sees the dragon, and then he goes on to expound even more. That ancient serpent. Wow, who's that a reference to? That's a reference to the serpent in the Garden of Eden, right? So John's saying what we're talking about here is the devil, Satan himself, the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. So the angel seizes him, and he goes on to say he bound him 
for a thousand years. Now, um, that's where the term millennium comes in. Uh, millennium meaning a thousand, a thousand years. And uh, as I said before, there's, there, there, there's a lot of uh, debate over, over how to understand the millennium. Let me just say this. Um, this is the only passage in the Bible that mentions it. So that's one reason I'm really, really cautious about, uh, or at least I hope I am, about building a whole system of doctrine out of it. Okay? Um, there, are, there are pretty much three main views, which, as I say, we might be able to discuss a little bit tonight. Um, but what I want to do here is just give you a little bit of what I think is the, the, the correct view, my understanding, the correct view, and, and just kind of zero in on what I think are the things that are clearly happening here. So, for example, one thing that is clearly happening here, in some sense, Satan is being bound, restrained, okay? And at least in terms of the imagery, he's being bound for a period of a thousand years. Now, I don't necessarily, I don't take that literally. I think, it, I think it's just a way of communicating a, a, uh, a fullness of time, you know, like a, a, a perfect amount of time that God has ordained. <clears throat> and I should say this too about the thousand years. You look down in verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. I'll come back to that in a moment. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. So, so there's that term again. And I would say we're, that's talking about the same thousand year period. In other words, verse 6. Verse 2, we're talking about the same thousand years. So the thousand years that Satan is restrained is the same thousand year period that the people of God reign with Christ. It's being referred to in verse 6. But again, I don't, I, but I don't take it as a literal 1,000 years. I think, I think the number is figurative, just indi- indicating a complete period. A time that Jesus had, and that's one of the, that, that the Lord has uh, um, determined, and that's one of the things we we've seen repeatedly in the Book of Revelation that numbers are used in a figurative uh, fashion. You know, seven spirits of God. Remember that back in chapter one, um, and, and sometimes people look at that and go, "What does it mean, the seven spirits of God?" I thought there's one Holy Spirit. God is spirit, and 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 uh, He exists um, in the persons of Father, Son, and Spirit. Well, it's it's imagery. And it has to do with the number seven has to do with perfection. Um, so we, we've seen that quite a bit. The 144,000, which I think just represents, uh, again, a, a fullness, a full number. So the people of God, not a literal 144,000. All right, so there's, there's a lot of that going on in the book of Revelation, and I think that's what's going on here. So not a literal 1,000 years probably, but, um, but just a, a, a lengthy period of time that God has determined. And the idea of completion is here. In other words, that amount of time is going to, whatever it is, is, is going to come to pass. And during that amount of time, Satan will be restrained and the people of God will reign with Christ. Now, a lot of people look at this and they say, okay, verse 2 says the angel will 
bind Satan. He bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. So a lot of people look at that and they read that and and they say, that must be a time when Satan is somehow, by the power of God, removed from the earth, in some sense, so so that he doesn't have any influence. And so that's interpreted... Um, as being somewhere out there in the future. Because obviously, um, we see a lot of bad things going on in our day, don't we? And I've had people tell me if, if, uh, uh, you know, if, 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 if Satan is bound now, uh, goodness, what would it look like when he's, when he's not, you know? Um, obviously, he's not bound now. That, that's somewhere out in the future. Well, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest this. Um, and, and I'll give you a reason or two. Um, hear why. I do think it is referring to now. <clears throat> As I was saying a little earlier on, um, the victory that Christ has won is now and forever. And we talked last week about um, the decisive victory. Where did that decisive victory happen? Happened at the cross. Amen. Or you could say, you know, we want to be a little bit more... Um, um, Precise, I suppose. You could say it happened in the life, suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. In other words, the work of Christ. It happened in the work of Christ. And at the cross, the point in history and in the life and ministry of Christ, where it looked like defeat was actually the point of victory. When he went down in death, I mean, it looks like he's... He, what, what more could the enemy do? I mean, you know, he's done. So he goes down in death. It looks like defeat. And what was actually going on there was he was winning the battle. He was winning, he was winning the war. He said, right, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. He, he was doing what was necessary to conquer death for you and me. And he had to go through death in order to do that. So he's, he's winning the victory at the very point that looks like the point of his greatest defeat. And Paul says he was declared to be the Son of God through the resurrection of the dead from the dead. So when he rose again from the grave... His victory became manifest, right? It's not that He became the Son of God at that point, but at that point, the fact that He was the Son of God became manifest. He had defeated death. He had defeated Satan, right? So He had won a victory over death and over sin, a decisive victory. He didn't didn't just win the battle at that point. He, he won the war at the cross. So, here's what I'm suggesting. I think at that point is when Satan was bound. He sees the dragon. Here's the imagery again in verse 2 and 3. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years... 
and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him. So, what I'm suggesting is, when it says he bound him, again, all that we just read is just imagery describing a spiritual reality. And I'm suggesting the reality is, is that God has restrained Satan in such a way that he can no longer deceive the nations. I'll come back to that in a minute. But, but first, let me, let, me, let, me, uh, let me deal with this word bound here and try to give you another, uh, another reference here and, and one reason that I, that I interpret it that way. Um, look, at, uh, look with me at Matthew 12, 29. Hold your place here. Uh, just one verse, Matthew 12, 29. And the uh, parallel for it is... Uh, Mark 3, I believe, but I'm going to read from 12, Matthew 12:29. but uh, Mark 3 is the same account. Mark's, Mark's account, Peter's account through Mark. In Mark 12, um, Jesus is being accused of operating by the power of Satan. They said that the reason he could cast out demons was by the power of the prince of demons, Beelzebul. That's, that's verse 24. And so Jesus comes back and quotes Abraham Lincoln and says, A house divided cannot stand. Now, that's not quite right. I think, uh, I think Abraham Lincoln quoted Jesus. But at any rate, Jesus comes back and he says, in verse 25, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So what he's saying is, you're talking foolishness. Satan doesn't cast out Satan. How would his kingdom stand? Um, and then he says in verse 27, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, that is Satan, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges, but, verse 28, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, which of course was the reality, but if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, now to, to, to further make this point and to, and to uh, um, uh, just give them a little bit of lesson in logic, I guess here, um, Jesus says in verse 29, How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he, sh- he may plunder his house. Now, that's a little parable. And it is about Jesus plundering the house of Satan. Okay? Satan is the strong man in this parable. Jesus is the stronger man. <laughs> All right. Uh, if you got a, if, if if you need to penetrate a, a strong man's house, you need a, somebody that's stronger than that man to do it. If you want to plunder his house, you need somebody that's stronger. You know, um, Osama bin Laden was holed up in a little compound in Pakistan. And uh, I'm sure it was pretty uh, well guarded. Um, so to get to him um, wasn't an easy task. But what you do is, is send in a force 
that is stronger than the one that's guarding the house, right? And that's what we did. And, and that's why he was killed. That's, that's, that's the picture Jesus is painting here. You've got a strong man, and you're going to plunder his house. You've you got to be stronger than he is. So Satan is the strong man in this parable. Jesus is the one who is able to plunder Satan's house. Why is he using that picture? Because that's what he's doing. See, he's going around casting out demons and healing the sick. <laughs> he, he is destroying, as it were, he's plundering, as it were, Satan's house. The strong man. Why doesn't Satan stop him? Because he can't, right? Because Jesus is stronger than he is. That's the point of the little parable. So he's telling them, look, I'm not casting out demons by the power of Satan. I'm casting out demons by the power of God because, yes, Satan is a strong man, but I'm stronger than he is. So I'm able to plunder his house. All right, now let's look at the wording Jesus uses in that little parable. Verse 29. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. That's the same word that John uses in Revelation chapter 20, verse 2. Bound him for a thousand years. So in this little parable, what Jesus is, is telling them, look, you're accusing me of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. I'm telling you what I'm doing is casting out demons by the power of God because I have bound Beelzebul. And therefore, I'm able to plunder his house. I'm able to cast out demons. I'm able to heal the sick because I'm able to bind him. In other words, he cannot resist my power. That's what Jesus is saying. He's restrained. He's restrained as long as I'm on the scene. That's what Jesus is saying. He is restrained. Okay? Now keep that in mind. We're quickly running out of time. So, And like I said, a lot of this we're, we're going to come back to anyway tonight. So keep that in mind. And let's go back to Revelation 20 and verse 2. The angel bound him for a thousand years. He bound Satan. So, yes, what I'm suggesting is he is restrained for this thousand year period. Not meaning that he can't do anything. Even in Jesus' day, um, there were still um, demon-possessed people. But what would happen? Jesus would come and set them free. And, and Satan could not stop that because he's restrained by the power of God. So, that's the picture here. He's bound for this thousand years. And there's a reason for it in verse 3. He bound him and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, which again I think is just a way of describing that he is, he is um, firmly secured if you, if to, or, or, you know, restrained. Now, God doesn't have trouble restraining Satan. So, so you picture you know, throwing him in a pit, locking him up, securing it. Um, God has no problem restraining Satan. He is successfully restrained. Sealed it over so that, here comes the, the reason, 
so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Now, there's another tough verse, right? And you might say, well, now I did now that just kind of shoots down your whole theory here because if he's bound now, according to this, he can't deceive the nations. Isn't he out there deceiving the nations? Well, yes and no. Again, I'm suggesting that he's, he's restrained, not, not that he can't do anything, but that he's, he's, he's on a leash, so to speak. So, just to state it clearly, let me, let me say it like this. What he cannot do is stop the advancement of the gospel throughout the nations. Before Jesus left this world, he gave a commission to his disciples, and by, by extension, and he gave it to the to the eleven that were that were there and the other disciples. But by extension, it's it is to you and I, because he goes on to say, um, I'm, "I'm with you to the end of the age." So I know he wasn't just talking about those disciples back then; he's talking about you and I as well. And he said, "Go and make disciples of all." What? Nations. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So, so he gives a commission, go and teach all nations about me. And you look at Matthew, 21, uh, Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, where he's talking about of the end of the age and so forth. And, uh, and he says that this gospel must be proclaimed throughout the world. It's, it's got to go to all nations. And I, I think a, uh, uh, an accurate way to paraphrase that is to say to all people groups. It must go to all people groups. So here's what I'm suggesting that Satan is restrained in that he cannot stop the gospel from going to all people groups. So, so you could say it another way. He, he, he's restrained in that he cannot stop the church from fulfilling its mission. He can harass us. He can bring persecution. He can even, uh, you know, if God permits, he can even kill uh, Christians uh, by means of, of uh, wicked men. But he cannot stop the advancement of the gospel. And you look at um, um, places like China, for example, that tried to uh, literally become a closed nation to the gospel and, and just say, you know, we're not having that here. And what has happened instead, the church has grown like crazy. And now, uh, at least by most estimates, outnumbers the Communist Party. The Christians in China outnumber the Communist Party. Um, it has it has just grown in spite of Satan's efforts to shut it down. So he's restrained in that he cannot stop the advancement of the gospel. And I think that's what is meant here when it says, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. It's not that nobody anywhere will not be deceived. But remember, the, the focus here is on the nations. It's got all people groups. All ethnicities. Satan had the nations deceived. In fact, you look at Old Testament and what have you got? You've got one nation that belongs to God. And the nations, plural, anybody, anybody that wasn't an Israelite, 
they were considered pagan, idolaters. So all the nations were deceived. But then Jesus comes on the scene and says, this gospel is going to all the nations. Who's going to stop that? Matter of fact, Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And I, and I think that's a, 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 an offensive statement, not a defensive one. A lot of times people take that to mean Satan's going to attack, but he's not going to be able to overcome us. And I think what Jesus is actually saying is the church is going to attack, and Satan's not going to be able to stop it. Because that's what a gate does. A gate is designed to keep people out. So when Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail, he's picturing the church ramming the gates of hell... And he's saying they're not going to prevail. They're coming down. In other words, the gospel is going to all nations. All nations that were previously deceived are now going to um, have the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean that every single person is going to be saved far from it. Um, but it does mean that, and we've seen this earlier on in the book of Revelation, in the church, the church is going to be um, represented by people from every tribe Kindred, tongue, and nation, right? Because Satan is restrained. So very quickly here, if I can just finish up. I think the thousand years refers to the period we are in now. The, the, the time frame, 1,000 years, is symbolic, but it's referring to the church age. The time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And it is during that time that Satan is restrained. However, at the very end of it, he'll be loosed again for a short period. There'll be a final conflict and then the final judgment. All right? So the thousand years is where we are now. And listen, we reign with Christ now and forever. And I'm going to have to come back to the... uh, the first resurrection, which is mentioned in verse 5. Lord willing, I'm going to have to come back to, to that tonight. But let me just get to the, the blessing, the, the, uh, the, um, the beatitude here in verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. The same thousand years um, that verse um, 2 and 3 is talking about there. So here's the picture. Christ comes, plunders the house, the, the first coming. The first coming. Christ comes, plunders the house of Satan, binds Satan, and He establishes His kingdom. And we are now kings and priests. In fact, Peter says we're a, we're a chosen people, a royal priesthood. And earlier in the book of Revelation, it referred to us as kings and priests, or a kingdom of priests. And we reign with Christ now in one sense. Paul says we're seated in the heavenlies with Christ. Set your affections on things above, where Christ is. Why? Because that's where, that's where we are. That's where our... Our identity is now. We are citizens of heaven. And Satan is bound. And here again, as I think 
great encouragement for the church in the sense that he cannot stop the advancement of the gospel. He can bring persecution, yes, but he cannot stop the mission of the church, which is to get the gospel to all nations. There will be people from all nations, meaning all people groups, who come to faith in Jesus Christ. And Satan cannot stop that. The victory is now and forever. There's a sense in which we, we, rule, we reign with Christ now and we will forever in, in, the, in the fullest expression of it. One final word and we're done. I'll come back to this tonight. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. You get further along in the chapter, Satan and all of those who were deceived by, the, by him are cast into uh, the lake of fire. And verse 15 says that's the second death. And the only ones who are immune to the second death are those who have been through the first resurrection. And that's verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. So let me just state this briefly so we can finish, and then tonight I'll try to unpack it. Uh, I think that's referring to those who are saved by the grace of God. Regeneration, regenerated people. So in other words, for all those who are not in Christ, they are deceived by Satan, the God of this world. And if they don't repent, they face the same condemnation that he faces, which is to be cast into the lake of fire forever, experiencing the second death. But here again is where the encouragement of this book comes in. For the church, for those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the second death, that is eternal damnation, has no power for those who are in Christ. You, if, if you've been through the first resurrection, that is, if you're born again, which is what I think he's referring to, then the second death has no power over you. Or, to say it another way, in the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8.1, there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Christ has won the victory. Now, and forever. Would you stand, please? And we'll dismiss with a word of prayer. Father, again, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the blessing of being able to uh, gather and, and uh, have worship and Bible study, fellowship. Lord, help us uh, in the remainder of this day to, to, to stay focused upon You. Uh, Lord, help us to honor You in all that we do. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.